Welcome to Swanglinese, the only podcast talking the language of business here in the Middle East. Your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Andermo, give you their own insights as well as interviewing business leaders in the region to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. Barry, Oscar, let's talk Swanglinese. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by CoBabble. CoBabble is a new platform that aims to help you digitize your business. Simple to use, massively powerful, and guaranteed to bring your paper-based archaic processes into the digital age. Leverage technology already in your employees' hands, their smart devices, to help streamline processes, share information, educate, and train your workforce. Whether you have paper-based checklists, forms, or audits that need digitizing, are looking for a better way to communicate with your teams, or are looking to replace your existing system with one that is far more cost-effective, Cobabble is the tool for you. Check out cobabble.com for more information to request a demo or sign up for a free trial. Cobabble, your digitization partner. Hello, and a very warm welcome to this episode of the podcast in the virtual studio this week. I have got the pleasure of the company of Helen Chen. Hi, Helen. How are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for having Um, me. It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for taking the time. Um, I know that you're extremely busy and in the middle of traveling all over the place. I really do appreciate uh, taking the time to do this. One of the things that we like to do on this podcast to start with is just ask our guests to turn back the uh, the timeline, as it were, uh, and just give us a, a brief synopsis of, of who Helen is, where you started in the business world, uh, and then you bring us up to date to how we ended up on this uh, podcast talking about you and your current endeavor. So over to you, Helen. Sure thing. Um, So I'm Helen. I'm one of the co-founders and the CEO of Nomad Homes. Uh, Prior to starting Nomad, I actually grew up in Washington State. Um, I'm formally trained as an investor. So I went to Wharton undergrad. I started at Blackstone in the private equity group doing consumer retail investments for them in their New York office. I spent some time living in Beijing on secondment with the Chinese Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, for those of you who can't see me because we're on a podcast, but I am Chinese American. And then uh, I and then I moved to the Bay Area to be with a family office to help them with their investments. At which point in time, I actually decided I just did not want to be an investor for life anymore. And so I thought, okay, it's a good time for me to go to business school, figure this out. Uh, fortunate enough to get into Stanford and really started pursuing my passion, which has always been in real estate. Um, so, so when I was a kid growing up, my parents had rental properties and my job over the summers was to turn them. So like painting the walls and fixing the doorknobs and the sinks. Um, right. I'm an excellent handy person. If any of the listeners need some, some fixing upping of their homes, you can call me. Um, but you know, uh, what started as, you know, my parents teaching me hard work turned into something that I loved. Um, I studied real estate in undergrad. I worked with Goldman Sachs and their real estate banking group. My first investment was in a rental property. And to this day, I love looking at houses. Uh, Anywhere I go in the world, whether I want to live there or I don't want to live there, I'm always looking at what's for sale, what's for rent, uh, what's it look like. Um, and, And, you know, so when I got to Stanford, I started talking to all the companies like Open Door, like Zillow like Fly Homes or Compass. And just given my international background, I spent a lot of time in uh, Beijing, London, Paris, Dubai, Sao Paulo, like figuring out how do people find their home? Mm -hmm. And it turns out 
it's a really painful process. Um, there's oftentimes fake listings and duplicate listings. Uh, you feel like you're alone in this journey. That is arguably the most uh, important personal and financial decision of your life. And no one's on your side. And I thought that was crazy. So I was really digging in across Europe and the Middle East, which is the third largest residential real estate market in the world. And I was like, this is crazy. Like no one's helping the customer. And I decided that if no one was going to help the customer, then I was just going to do it myself. So I dropped out of Stanford after my first year. I convinced my co-founders, Dan and Damien. Dan was a senior product manager at Adapar, one of Joe Lonsdale's unicorn fintech companies, and Damien had spent seven years at Uber to join me in starting Nomad. And really, that is how Nomad Homes got its start about two years ago. Right. Okay. So yeah, that's pretty pretty impressive start in terms of making a decision to drop out of, of Stanford and and then uh, go into this. But obviously, from what you just said, it's been a, a passion of yours since you've been young in terms of the idea of real estate. Uh, and as you mentioned there, that uh, and I'm going to focus. I know that you're across, you know, the Middle East and and, and Europe. But I'm going to focus on the UAE at the moment, just in terms of my own personal experience of trying to find somewhere to live in Dubai. Um, what, was it? Was there something that you knew of prior to setting up and looking at Dubai as one of your first launch places that it was particularly more difficult in in Dubai than it was other places? Because when and again, I've been in the UAE for the last sixteen years, and there's been a few developments over that time in terms of where you go. But still, you pretty much well, you'd go on to Property Finder, you'd go on to Dubizil, and you'd hope that whatever you saw was still available nine times out of 10. And again, not to be too disparaging to that industry, but you, you wouldn't be able to get somebody to actually show you the property. They would just say the doors open or um, just ask the security for the key. And inevitably six people are there. The security is not there. It just seems like such a hassle that didn't need to be a hassle. Did you have personal experience of that before you started it in, in the UAE? Or was it just other people's stories as well? It's a lot of other people's stories and also kind of mystery shopping my way through it. Um, I think fundamentally finding your home is just such an important personal and financial decision, especially during COVID and lockdown and work from home. It's where you spend the majority of your time. It's where your family lives. Um, it's where you have a sense of belonging and it is also the largest investment that you're going to make. Um, so for those reasons, like to your point, you know, people not picking up the phone, hoping that the listings are accurate, like truly like that's unacceptable. Um, mm. The experience of finding your home, because it is so important, it shouldn't be something that everybody dreads when it comes time to do it. We want you to actually enjoy your experience through Nomad Homes. Um, and that's really like what drives us every single day to, to build our company. Mm. So how is it that Nomad does it differently in terms of those things. Like, I mean, again, this is where you can get into a little bit more detail because the idea of having non-duplicate listings, I wouldn't have thought was too difficult, especially when you're building a platform to say, well, okay, if, if somebody's got this, there, there's so many things that, like you say, from an external perspective, as, as Joe Public on the street thinking, right, I'd like to look for my new home. Why do these things exist? How is it that Nomad does it differently uh, from, from that standpoint? Yeah. The core of what we do is we empower buyers and renters to search, transact, and finance in one go. So it's basically one-stop shopping. Mm -hmm. 
And so our value proposition to you as a customer is that you have one single point of contact to access the entire market of properties. This is the biggest piece and you never have to leave Nomad. You can start with the search with us, you can finish with the transaction and you can even finance through us. And so basically this is just a much more seamless experience than what is the traditional way of finding your home, which is you go online, you go offline to an agent, they don't have what you have. You go back online you go search again then you go call another agent. So this piece of like working with, you know, 30 different agents at a time, like we're getting rid of that. Uh, and we're allowing you to search, transact, and finance in, in one platform, as opposed to going to 30 different people to do the same thing. Um, so that is the core of what we're doing. And it really simplifies people's lives because we take the hassle or the headache out of the search process. We actually suggest properties to you um, based on what you're telling us that you like. Um, we have a, a very comprehensive database of properties um, and, you know, you or someone similar to you, we learn about what people's preferences are. And so we get better and better at suggesting properties. And then the convenient piece is that, you know, you never have to leave us in order to access all of the properties markets. Uh, sorry, all of the market, all of the properties in the market. Um, mm -hmm. And that is the convenience of having one point of contact. Yeah, for, for sure. Which then it, it bets the question in my mind as to, obviously you saw this as an opportunity, but based on what you've just said there, how come it, why haven't people done it before you thought about this? Because it, it would be a fundamental thing, wouldn't it, in, in my mind now. Why do you think that it wasn't done before you took on, on the, the, the mantle of doing this? I think, first of all, we take a different approach to how we're solving the problem. Um, for us, the customer is the person, is the, is the buyer and the renter. That's our core mm. customer. Um, and when we think about kind of solving this problem, they go back to basics and back to fundamentals. So we're interviewing a lot of customers. We see um, on a global basis because we have global investors, we have operations globally, you know, what are other people in other markets doing to solve this problem? It's not unique to the, it's not unique to the UAE or unique mm. to Dubai that people struggle to find their home. Um, that's actually a common problem around the world. And so we are students of the game. We learn from other companies, other industries that have similar problems. Um, we apply them to what we're doing. And also, you know, we always have the customer um, at heart in terms of what can we do to make their lives easier. And that's exactly what we're going to do. Hmm. No, that makes sense. And I think, um, I guess the next question is, ha have you seen any, any pushback against your service because it's it's again just from that brief brief discussion it's like well everybody should be on nomad using the service which of course you would want but aside from that isn't that the case is that are you seeing people that are saying well it can't they can't be doing that because why isn't x or y company also doing that why do i see all of these things going on have you seen any of that happening in in, in your space yeah i i think being a consumer company a lot of what we do at nomad is actually educating the customer that there is a better way. Um, right. Sometimes people don't believe that, you know, this can actually be an easy process when it can. And so, you know, before Kareem started, people didn't know there was another way to find a, a ride than a taxi. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes a lot of what we're doing is just education, consumer education about nomad homes, about why you can do something better or differently 
Um, mm -hmm. and, and changing consumer behavior does take time. It actually does take time. And so that's why, you know, we're seeing incredible feedback from the users and the customers that we have today. Um, but we need to continuously educate more and more customers um, and, and have them, you know, understand that they can use Nomad um, instead of struggling through their, uh, their home search. Mm, oh, definitely. I think that, that was going to be my question, I guess, around the, how much how much time is spent on educating the market. Because as with any new organization coming into that market to, to solve a problem, people are saying, yeah, I'm not so sure. Or is this legit? And how are they doing it differently? Um, and how are you actually educating? Are you doing it all digitally through sort of video tutorials? Are you doing it from an event perspective? Is it just a constant flow of, of information that's coming out through digital channels? What's the core sort of focus for Nomad when it comes to that? Because like you said, it's, it's going to be a long uh, term uh, approach to get people to a know about it, be consume the content to be educated. And then once they're more informed going, oh, okay, what well, this makes sense. So how is it that you're going about that? Our best evangelists are our customers. So when you are sitting at a dinner table with your friends and you hear someone say, Oh, I'm looking to find a home. That's something that you talk about right? Mm -hmm. I'm looking to move. I'm looking to buy. Um, that is a huge conversation topic. And what we found is that customers who have used Nomad Homes in the past are actually our best educators as well. Mm -hmm. They say, oh, well, I refer you to Nomad. And in this, you know, in a, in a pretty low trust industry, by having your friend recommend a platform for you to use to find your home, then you're going to say, oh, well, if, if, you know, if I, if they used it, then I should use it. And mm -hmm. so that's actually one of the best ways that we have found in educating the consumer. Yeah, no, it makes sense. That's always the best. Referral is always the most effective uh, form of marketing from that. But you've got to get those first evangelists on board, I suppose. And is it that you've, have you seen, um, have you been out and out marketing in the UAE for, from that side of things to get those guys on, on board? Because obviously there's got to be a starting point uh, before those people are going to start recommending Nomad at the, at the dinner table. But I agree that that's, that's the most powerful form. So how did you go about it from the initial standpoint to get those, um, I, I suppose, those, those pioneers using you um, with, without that trust there to a certain extent? Yeah. Uh, we do do digital marketing, of course, uh, Google, Facebook content, like those are, those are kind of par for the course for any yeah. tech startup these days. Uh, that's kind of like baseline. You have mm -hmm. to do this. Um, other creative things that we do, um, we actually have partnerships with companies to help their employees move, to help their employees find their home, buy their home, rent their home. Um, that's something that we're doing. Again, it's another high trust network um, mm -hmm. that's educating the, the, the users that there's a different way. Uh, also, I would say being a thought leader is important. Uh, the ability to kind of be at the forefront of prop tech is also important. And then mm -hmm. it helps that, you know, we've raised $20 million from leading investors around the world. Uh, when you Google us, uh, if you Google Nomad Homes, like those articles will pop up. Mm -hmm. And when you see that, you know, the former CEO of Twitter, um, the CEOs of Zillow and Open Door have invested in this company and put their stamp of approval behind it, implicitly there is a trust factor at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say it's like a combination of factors. It's, it's a constant web of customers. 
Mm. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense for sure uh, from, from that perspective. Um, one other, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, just got a little blip there. <laughs> um, so this actually is a really important question I would ask. Do you, would you have been able to do what you are doing with Nomad without investment? Would you have got, would you have, or had you thought about that route? Um, I think it's something that every every small business or startup thinks about. Could you have done it? Or, and would you recommend going down that investment route based on your experience? It would have been a lot more difficult if we didn't have money. Mm-hmm. I would say not every startup or not every small business needs to raise money, mm-hmm. I would say. And for us, you know, we wanted to serve as many customers as possible, as quickly as possible and expand geographies. And in order to do that, you need investment. So for us, like having investors who are super supportive, who have a ton of knowledge about the space, that was pivotal for us. Um, and it allowed us to move very, very quickly. Whereas, you know, general advice for other startups or other small businesses, like it's not necessarily, you have to do it that way. It's, it's really a question of what are your end goals and how can you best service your customers? And if the answer is, well, I need, I need money to grow and to build more product and to invest, then you know, then then you have your answer. Say mm-hmm. you need outside funding and outside partners to really help your business. Yeah, no, no that makes sense for sure, definitely. So, um, just a, a slight t- tangent here in terms of well, not really, but just in terms of the idea of what's going on currently in the world. You mentioned COVID, obviously, it's just everywhere and everything's going on right now with it. Um, I'd really like to get your insight into specifically in the in the Middle East as to what. COVID's done to the real estate market in, in terms of where you're seeing things moving. I mean, I've got anecdotal evidence that we've seen just through the groups that I'm part of, you know, more people that were in apartments are now trying to find villas because of the first lockdown and don't ever want to be locked down in an apartment ever again uh, and all of these things. But can you just give us a bit of an insight into what you've actually seen happening through the, the data that Nomad has given uh, from, from your platform? So at Nomad... We've definitely seen an influx in, you know, people looking for outdoor space, looking to have a larger space, especially because a lot of people are working from home now. So it's not only where you go home and have dinner and be with your family, it is now your workplace as well. So we've seen people kind of move around and change their preferences. However, Given the state that Dubai is in now, um, you know, with things basically back to normal, uh, we've kind of seen trends go back to what we expected before. Young professionals are still living in apartments. They like to be, you know, in downtown, close to uh, close to close to other people and restaurants and things to do. And so I would say when COVID first started happening, and maybe. August or September, right after that first wave, we saw a big shift in preferences. Um, Mm -hmm. However, it's generally, I would say, like back to normal. I would also say that uh, occupancy in Dubai is higher than ever. Um, It's actually, uh, you know, basically every property has a resident in it, whether it's a tenant or an owner, um, it's actually very high occupancy. Right. Well, that's interesting because I know that from, again, conversations I've had that 
when you drive around Dubai, especially you're constantly seeing construction and a lot of people are saying, well, who's it for? Because there's been a lot of talk about people leaving. COVID has obviously impacted a lot of people that have been forced to leave, et cetera. But it's interesting to, to, to note that actually there's a requirement still. It's, there's, there's more people than, than houses right now, which is, which is interesting. Um, is that anything to do with Expo? <laughs> Definitely. Uh, there are a lot of people in Dubai right now. Um, mm. And, you know, Expo has driven a lot of interest in the country as well as the city. And people are moving uh, to Dubai. Um, people are visiting. People need somewhere to stay when they're visiting. So, you know, short-term holiday home Airbnbs, like those are very popular, which basically just drives occupancy up because those properties would have other been used for normal long-term rentals. And so in general, when you have more demand than supply, uh, you know, there's a shortage and mm. prices do come up. Um, we've seen prices increase anywhere, you know, from 30 to 40% year over year. And wow. that's a significant increase. Yeah, very much so. What does that mean then for after Expo? If they, this is a, not a false, it's obviously been driven upwards because of Expo, but if there's a huge percentage of people that are now, um, well, again, maybe they're temporary because they're here for Expo, but what, what's your opinion of once uh, the, the, the um, I guess, the interest and so forth around Expo people coming in and you get to the end of that six-month period, what does that actually mean for the real estate market in, in Dubai and the UAE? So... I think the government has done a really good job of attracting people to come to Dubai mm -hmm. and then stay in Dubai as well. I think mm -hmm. if you look at, you know, hopefully there's not another lockdown around the world, but if it did, you know, Dubai was a pretty safe place and a pretty mm -hmm. comfortable place for people to be. And I think that's what's attracting a lot of people to actually relocate to Dubai. And so a lot of the customers that we're seeing now are actually international relocations to move their families and to move their lives. Um, into Dubai. And I think the other piece that is accelerating that movement is really um, the, the move toward remote working and mm. online working. So people basically have the flexibility to work anywhere in the world, uh, time zone permitting. And, you know, I think they think that, you know, this and, and Dubai is actually a good place for them to be. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I, I think that, that it is. It offers still a lot of opportunity uh, for, for young people, for entrepreneurs, for people to set up their own business. Uh, and like you say, the ability to work from home and during any potential lockdowns, um, even through the last couple of years being in Dubai, like you say, looking around the world, there's definitely a lot of people saying, so, okay, it, it's not such a bad place to be locked down, actually, comparatively to some of the stuff that was going on. So I can see that. Um, and I guess that's just an indication of what uh, what what COVID has done um, to the world is that if, if we can work from where, wherever, then then why not? And I think it also helps a lot of companies open their eyes to the fact that actually, you know, clocking in at eight o'clock and clocking out at 6 p.m., that doesn't make an effective workforce just it doesn't necessarily mean that people are working and and i always say this you know even back in the days when i was working you could easily um easily actually uh spend a whole day in the office and not actually accomplish very much uh, but you were there physically and so okay yeah attended work today kind of thing so it is interesting to see see what's happening um, and how that will impact but i agree with you that the the uae government has done a, a pretty spectacular job of, of management around this and i hope having been there like you say i've been here for the last 16 years i hope that the 
that, that everything will continue along the way that it's going to. Because sometimes when you sat there and you're looking at it, I think, how, how is this happening? How is this continuing? Is, is it genuine? Is it genuinely driving the price of our people looking for these houses? Is it that, you know, I know a lot of people were looking for rentals at the beginning of, of lockdown and then suddenly like, it, like it's gone up 30%, it's gone up 40%. How is that happening when people are losing their jobs and there seems to be a downturn and so forth? So it is a very interesting market to be in, I think. And, um, this sort of leads me into the next question, which is more Helen related uh, than, than, than the actual business side of things, is that you started out and were trained as an investor. You're obviously working for other people from that side of things. Uh, how did you find the transition from being an employee within an organization to doing your own thing? How, how was that for you? Definitely a big change uh, mm. going from working for someone to working for yourself. I think what's important when you start your own company is that you really love what you do. Mm. Building a company, starting a company, it's a ton of work. Um, There's ups, there's lots of downs, you have to fight. And I think what keeps you floating through it all is the fact that you love it, that you believe in what you're doing, that you're making a difference. And that's what gets you up in the morning to continuously fight. And I think like that is really different from just doing, you know, working, working at a normal job, because like you said, you can go to the office, clock in, clock out, and maybe you're not that productive that day. Mm -hmm. But when it's your own company, you know, you are driving the impact at the company. So one day of just clocking in and not really doing anything does not progress, you know, the vision or the mission of your company. So it's a totally different level of uh, motivation and commitment to what you're doing. Mm. Not very much so. And how important, because you said you've got two business partners. For There's some people that go on this journey alone as a solopreneur and, and they do it. And I, I take my hat off to them as well, because it's, it's like I say, it's a lot of discipline, I think. For you, how important was it, is it during this, this time to have other people as in your business partners? I would not do this alone, personally speaking. Uh, Dan and Damien have been awesome. We each have, you know, disciplines that we excel at and, you know, we complement each other in terms of what I'm good at, what they're good at. We kind of fit together like a puzzle or a pie, however you want to call it. And I think the other great thing about having co-founders is that, it's actually, you know, it's a difficult journey to start a company and having people who are supportive and who are your friends and who are there and as committed as you are to do, you know, to, to, to be there and push nomad homes forward is incredibly important. Um, you know, the, the mental stability of having that um, allows you the capacity to keep pushing. Mm. And was it a conscious decision then by you guys beforehand that you knew that each of you offered something different or was it a kind of, okay, let's get together and we're going to, we, we know that we're all good at certain things, but was it a conscious decision that you knew beforehand before going into to setting this up? I think the first piece to when we were looking for co-founders is the fact that we all liked and trusted and respected each other. And then the secondary piece is that our skill set were complementary to each other. So it's a combination of multiple factors as to what makes a co-founding team good. 
Mm. No, definitely. I think mean, sometimes people go into this journey and they say, well, you know, I'm good friends with my, my buddy here. We'll, we'll just go and start a business and, and that's it. And they do. And sometimes they're super successful and sometimes they actually uh, it ends the friendship because there wasn't any real thought into what was going to happen next. And so that's why I asked that question just in terms of um, whether it was pre-planned and, and not knowing that beforehand. Um, and did they also know how much they were going to get into in terms of transitioning across from, from working for someone else to working for themselves? I think when you're committed, you're committed. And unless you've done it before, I don't think you know what you're getting mm -hmm. yourself into, right? But yeah. it's a leap of faith that you have to take. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And there's a few, you know, jump and grow wings on the way down. Um, but it's it's also that I think it takes a certain type of person to make that initial decision anyway, um, to, to go from that security of working for somebody or, or for an organization to then um, not having not having that backing. And this is actually a question I, I, I got from an, another guest is that how did you notice the difference in having a air quotes brand behind you beforehand to then building your own brand? Did you notice a significant difference for you as an individual when you weren't presenting a bigger brand as it were and building your own? Does that something that consciously affected you or not, not really you just, just pushed it by the, by the wayside. I think once you commit, you just commit. And right. whatever obstacles you find in your way, you just have to deal with it. Uh, because mm. I think like going back to my original point of like, you really need to love what you do because every day you are basically problem solving. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I wouldn't say there's smooth sailing anywhere in this journey. It's the fact that you love what you do and you believe it and you will jump over or push aside any obstacle in your way to, to do what you believe is right and especially mm. to, to service your customers. So I think, you know, there are tons of obstacles uh, when you start a company. And I think no matter what, like if you believe in what you're doing, like you will find a way around it. Mm. Yeah, no, very true. Very true. It's just, I think it's just, it was more that the, uh, some people identify with who they are personally because I work for Microsoft and I'm now I'm selling that brand and therefore it's, that's who I am. And then when they decided to go away from that and then they suddenly stood there and like, oh, people don't really want to listen to me anymore because I'm not saying X brand and I can't even get through the door sometimes. And, and it wasn't just about overcoming their obstacles, whether it was a piece of them. And, and I think some people had to go through this almost self-realization that actually that's not who I am. Um, I'm not the representative of that brand. I am actually a, 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 an individual that's powerful in my own self and I could actually go on and do so much more. But I just wondered if you'd sort of experienced that yourself as well. Um, you know, I think a lot of what I've done in the past has definitely shaped who I am today. Um, but I think in order to start your own company, like you do need to embody your company right? Mm. You are a co-founder. You are the face of your company. You are the chief selling officer of your brand. Uh, so, you know, if, if you can't get over that hump, it's kind of difficult. Um, mm. How do you convince people to join your company? How do you convince customers who don't know what you do to try and use you? Um, so you really need to embody your own brand. Mm. Yeah, very, very true. And I think that that, again, it takes a certain kind of person um, you're obviously that kind of person, but what does Helen do to keep herself 
on track, as it were. They're, they're obviously from your background in investing and what you've done and where you've been from an education perspective, making big decisions to drop out of a you know, prestigious organization like Harvard and, and go and do something else. What is it that you do yourself that keeps you in this space, keeps you moving forwards? Is, is it something, or again, I guess it's the, the roundabout question is, we always like to ask our guests for resources that they would fall back on that keep them um, in the space that is is a difficult one to be in because like you say you are constantly on you're constantly firefighting you are in some cases taking one hat off and putting on another hat and it can be at all hours of, of the day how, how do you stay on track is there anything specific that you do or that you would recommend other people that are thinking about this journey to to, to, to check out yeah uh, I- I have a couple of recommendations here. So one is having a really strong support network. Uh, my husband's incredibly supportive. My family's incredibly supportive. So are my friends, but also the investors that we have board, uh, have on board. So our Series A investors, our seed investors, you know, they obviously have a vested interest given they invested, you know, 20 plus million dollars into our company um, to make sure that Nomad Homes is a success. But part of that is they also have a vested interest to make sure that the founders are doing well and that they are, you know, in a place to be making decisions that are best for the company. And so that support network of, you know, former Twitter executives or someone who was co-founder of Zillow, like that's really important as well as your family. And, you know, if you have a partner in your life, that's super important. And I think the other thing is um, I always like to be a student of the game. So I like to read a lot about other companies to understand what they're doing, I'm a pretty big network of founders as well. Um, so that's another thing. It's like you get to learn from each other. Um, you get to trade notes. I would say being uh, also being like a female founder CEO mm-hmm. is a little different. Uh, when you look around, especially in real estate and fintech, um, you don't really see female founder CEOs. Uh, right. Most most people are men. And so I think it's it's combination of the network, um, the ability to continuously learn from other people, the support system that you have. I think that's what keeps keeps me going um, and really allows me to feel like, okay, like I'm really not alone in this journey. There are a lot of people around me who are supportive and also a lot of people around me who have gone through the exact same thing that I have been going through. Sure. Yeah. And again, that's a big part of this podcast is to help share that knowledge in, in terms of what you've gone through your personal journey. Just quickly on that book point, is it still physical books that you read or are they digital now? I listen to books. Ah, okay. Audiobooks. Cool. Cool. It's always I listen interesting. To books. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, uh, anytime I'm in a car, I'm listening to something. I think like, you know, like, for example, my co-founder prefers books, physical books, right. uh, but I, I prefer to listen to books. Mm. Yeah, so I like ask because I, I prefer to listen as well. Now you can do it, like say, win the car in the gym, wherever, whatever yeah. you're doing, um, and also just the the thought of carrying like books with you when you're traveling and stuff these days. Yeah, like, I, I think it's. Uh, I actually still like physical books, but they're really heavy, mm. and I also listen to audiobooks on two x speed, so mm. I can get through it very very quickly. Yeah, yeah, no, I do. I can't do two X because some of the ones I'm listening to, it just sounds too too much like a chipmunk. But I definitely have one and a half um, speed on most of what I listen to just to get get through uh, stuff. Because I've also found, and have you ever gone back to listen to things on normal speed now? It's very slow. 
it's almost like it's gone into slow motion. Like they're deliberately talking really, really slowly. And I think that can't be normal, but uh, I guess it is. <laughs> it's just an interesting, interesting concept. But uh, cool. No, well, there's a, in terms of the audiobooks, obviously you listen to a lot. Are there any that you have listened to more than once, I guess is the question. I have not listened to one more than once. Okay. I like to consume a vast variety of content. Um, so whether it's news or podcasts, um, uh, you know, uh, I think I listen to a lot of different things. I don't necessarily focus on one thing. I'll give okay. you another example. Um, I Sometimes I don't have the attention span for a book anymore, which is, right. that's also why I listen to things on 2x speed. But recently I actually um, was listening to a book called Breathe. And it's the science of breathing. Um, and that was actually something that made me more intentional about how my breathing affects my capabilities as a person to, to think and be active and make decisions. So that was really interesting for me because it's about how you take care of your body and your mind um, for you to be at the highest level of performance. Yeah. Indeed, indeed, that actually answers my my last question, which was if I was to ask you what you are what you currently got on your your smart device, um, what would you be listening to? But actually, that book Breathe um, is a brilliant one. I think it's also something that a lot of uh, a lot of well people in general actually are starting to realize that your your physical and mental health are actually integral to success, really, in anything, um, whether it's your relationships, whether it's your work, whether it's just uh, life in general. You've got to. You got to take care of yourself, and uh, I think that being a lifelong student of that is is really cool. And it's also really interesting because when you do read and listen to these books, you're like, "Huh, something that I obviously took for granted, breathing." But actually, there is a, a lot to it. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I think uh, like you know, our team is 55 now, and so part of your job as a CEO is to make decisions mm. uh, and to make the correct decisions. And so if you're if you're mentally or physically not at the best state. Um, then it's very difficult to make the best decisions. Mm, absolutely. And like you say, there's a lot of responsibility there because you're not just making decisions on your behalf. It's it's on your workforce and other people's lives. And, and that that's a huge, it's a huge weight, actually. I think that's maybe something that people don't understand, especially when you start building out a team, that you are now responsible for other people's livelihoods and their their everyday and uh, their, what they're doing. And that that can weigh heavily, especially like you say, if you're not at peak uh, an optimum um, it makes sometimes uh, your decision making not great and that's just a bigger impact across the board so I think what, what you're doing with Nomad is, is really interesting it's such a it's always interesting to talk to people who have seen a gap in the market and then said you know what I haven't just seen it I'm going to do something about it and uh, obviously with that investment I'm sure there'll be more down the line and, and Nomad is going to be one of those uh, platforms and names that everybody's going to be talking about at the dining table uh, because it, it just provides a a service that's so required. And, and I hope that that is the case um, for you guys, uh, Helen. And uh, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to to speak with us. We we really enjoy talking to people like yourselves uh, that are making a difference, super successful, uh, are going through, you know, for a lot of people are thinking about making a decision to go through. So you sharing this kind of information is, is really helpful. And uh, again, just thank you very much for your time, Helen. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. And as always, if there's anyone that you would like us to speak with, then do send us a line at wishlist at swanglinese.rocks. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Swanglinese with your hosts, Barry Lee Cummings and Oscar Endermo. We'll catch you next time.